we are going to study over the next couple of weeks. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles on that little table and in the back over there, so help yourself. And if you actually don't have a Bible, you can take one with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. I've divided our chapter basically, wow, that got even louder. But I felt like I was before about 5,000 people for half a second right there. What was that, like the echo effect, or what was that? Feed my ego. Put it back on. Okay. I've divided this chapter into uh, really two sections. Um, this morning, we're going to work our way through section one, which would be verses one through five. And then next week... We'll take care of section 2, verses 6 to 25. We may need a, a couple of weeks on that section. I, I don't know yet. I haven't. I've looked through it, and it's, it's pretty amazing, but we might need a little more time than that. But we're pretty much looking at this chapter in two sections. And um, I've entitled this little mini-series within our series that we have that we've been in for a year and a half called You Will Be My Witnesses. The title of this little mini-series is The Futility of Fighting Against God. And uh, let me pray one more time, and then we'll, uh, we'll get to work. We'll have a little bit of an introduction, actually a little bit more of an introduction this time. It's kind of befitting to the series, and then we'll get into the text and, and, and take it apart and see what the Lord would have us do with it, hopefully apply it to our lives and be changed people. Father, Lord, is I guess I need to start with me, God, and I just need my heart calmed. I don't know why I'm anxious this morning. Uh, um, busy night last night, not that great of sleep, weird dreams. Who knows? All kinds of things going on there, but just calm my heart. Um, I think as a pastor, this is always my most reverent and feared moment in the public teaching of your word. Um, it's a tremendous thing and challenging. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and I, I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would fall upon each and every one of these individuals here today, Lord, that, that we would all, this congregation as well as me, convict, be convicted of sin, pointed in the right direction, Lord, towards the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of this world. May we be pointed to him as all of Scripture so rightfully does. All of Scripture, Lord, points to Jesus Christ. May we be pointed to him today. Our hope, identity, security, value, purpose, all that we have is wrapped up in him. Us Christians need to learn that today, and those who do not yet know you need to learn that you are their only hope. And so make it so today, Lord. Come, speak to us, apply these truths, apply this powerful word. Not my words, but your word, the Holy Scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ah, title, The Futility of Fighting Against God. Men, women, people have always fought against God from the very beginning. Even from before the beginning, before Men were created. Lucifer, the highest of all created beings, the highest angel, fought against God. And many of you know that he and the angels that sided with him were cast out of heaven for their and because of their insurrection. If we examine human history, we discover that it is strewn with the wreckage of the broken lives of those who have tried to fight God, those who have tried to fight against God. The German philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, despised the gospel and Christianity. He often referred to believers as weaklings. He spent his life fighting against Christianity, against the truth, therefore fighting against God. And in the end, many of you know, he lost his mind and went insane. Novelist Sinclair Lewis, winner of the 1930 Nobel Peace Prize for Literature, also fought against God. His novel, Elmer Gentry, some of you have probably heard of it, mocked the Christian faith. 
Its leading character was an evangelist who was also an alcoholic and a habitual fornicator. In the end, Lewis lost his sobriety and died a hopeless alcoholic in a clinic near Rome. Ernest Hemingway considered himself living proof that one could successfully fight against God. He boasted of battling in revolutions, conquering women, tumbling women, and leading a life of sin without any consequences whatsoever. However, his sins eventually found him out, and he committed suicide with a shotgun. Men have always fought against God. Consider the facts in the book of Genesis. God had a standard of living and righteousness. Eve decided to fight it, and Adam decided to join the fight, and all of us are thus cursed. We have the curse of sin, which came in through their battle and fight against God. God had a standard for sacrifice. Abel obeyed it, and Cain fought it and wound up cursed. God had a standard for morality. Noah kept it while the rest of the world fought it and drowned. God had a standard for separation from the world and sexual purity. Abraham kept it. Lot fought it, lost his wife, and his seed was cursed. God had a standard for spiritual priority. Jacob bought it, Esau fought it, and lost the blessing. In the book of Exodus, we discover a new type of enemy against God, a new fighter against God, the king. The king. Pharaoh was the first of many kings who chose to fight God from Exodus on, the scriptures show us over and over how kings rose up against God and were dashed to pieces. The Old Testament is literally strewn with the wreckage of kings who fought against God. Pharaoh fought against God. His fight cost him his honor, his people, his slaves, his army, his son, and his own life. His own life. King Arad, the Canaanite, fought against God, and God destroyed his people and armies. Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og and Bashan, all fought against God. They were slaughtered, and their land possessed by Israel. Balak, king of Moab, fought against God and lost. The Midianites fought against God. God slew all the Midianite males and took the five Midian kings and slew them. The king of Ai fought against God and was hanged. All the kings in Joshua 9 fought against God. They plotted all kinds of clever little devices, little strategies, strategies, strategies against God, and all five of them were taken and hanged on five trees in a row. The northern kings in Palestine fought against God. Joshua hamstrung all their horses and, and burned all their chariots and slaughtered them all with the sword. The Bible tells us in Joshua 12 that there were 31 kings who fought against God and all were slain by Moses and Joshua alone. The fact is, the greatest men of the world, the monarchs of the world, who could amass, fought against God, but they could not succeed. In the book of Judges, you will find that there were people who fought against God and were defeated. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, if you look there, you will find king after king who fought against God, but each attempt ended in disaster. After King Solomon, the 12 tribes of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom had a couple of tribes, and the northern kingdom had the remaining tribes. 
If you study the northern kingdom, you will find that every one of its kings fought against God. From Jeroboam down to Menachem, or Menahem. In 1 Kings 14, we read about King Jeroboam. Jeroboam fought against God, and God warned him, and he and his son, uh, actually, he warned him that he and his son would die, and both died, just as God had predicted, for fighting against God. In 2 Kings 19, we read about the king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib. Sennacherib fought against God, and 185,000 of his people were killed by an angel at night. While he was worshiping his God, false God, in the house of Nizhrak, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, these are hard names, his own sons actually came against him and killed him with a sword as he was worshiping his false God. Ahab fought against God, and what happened to him? The dogs licked up his blood. In the southern kingdom, most of the kings fought against God. Rehoboam and Jehoram and Ahaziah and Athaliah, right down to Zedekiah, all tried to fight against God and all suffered the consequences. Zedekiah's eyes were burned out, and he was chained and taken off to where? Babylon. The greatest in the world have fought against God. There have been Napoleons. There have been Hitlers. There have been Stalins. There have been Genghis Khans and everyone else. They have all tried to fight against God. They have all amassed the fortunes and the armies of the world and tried to fight against God. But they could not win in the New Testament era, one family of rulers stands out in the battle against God, the Herods. The patriarch of the family was known as Herod the Great. Many of you have heard of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled Judea from 47 B.C. to 37 B.C. After being dubbed the king of the Jews, Antony, Octavius, and the Roman Senate um, they all sort of went on to call him the king of the Jews, and after, after which he went on to rule over all of Palestine. He took over control over the whole area rather than a couple of provinces. And he ruled over all of Palestine, which would include the area of the nation of Israel, from 37 B.C. On, all the way up to the point of his death, which basically took place right after the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod the Great was a blood thirsty ruler, a bloodthirsty person. His heart was filled with bloodlust. He actually had one of his wives, his own wives, killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had three of his own sons put to death. What a dad, huh? Some of you are thinking, man, that's like my dad. He didn't kill anyone, but he killed us with his words and everything else. This guy was a bloodthirsty man willing to kill his own family, anyone who challenged his authority, challenged his leadership. He was a very paranoid man, a very superstitious man as well. Anyone that he felt was opposing him, he had killed, even his closest family members. Herod the Great actually put together a plan to uh, lure prominent Jewish leaders to Jericho where he actually fulfilled part of the plan and imprisoned them. He had this plan to bring them to Jericho uh, for whatever reason. We're going to have a wonderful pastoral summit. Come on over here. It's going to be great. We're going to do a prophecy conference. Well, of course, they all came. And what did, they, what did he do when they arrived? He locked them all up in prison. Now, part of his plan was this. While on his deathbed... He actually ordered that the leaders be executed right after he died so that there would be mourning at the time of his death. You see, nobody liked him. And he figured I could just bring all these people up here, these religious types that all of the people love, and if I have them killed right at about the time I'm about to die or have them killed right after I die, then there will be a whole bunch of weeping and putting on the sackcloth and crying and mourning, and it's going to make it look like the people are mourning my death. Well, he came up with this whole plan. Fortunately, it did not succeed. I don't know what happened, but it, didn't, it wasn't fulfilled. 
This is the type of individual that this Herod the Great was. Most barbaric of all was Herod the Great's slaughter of all the innocent young male children near Bethlehem. He sought vainly by this cruel act to kill the true king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, who was actually safely in Egypt with Joseph and Mary. Ultimately, Herod the Great was just one more powerful world leader who fought against God and lost. In our text today, you're going to be introduced to his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. He took the throne after Herod Antipas. Antipas was the king that ruled and reigned during the ministry of Jesus, during the time of Jesus. Agrippa I was also a bloodthirsty person, a bloodthirsty king. He actually rose to power after killing his own father, Aristobulus. Aristobulus was a leader, and his own son saw him as a threat to his rule and reign or becoming the king over this particular area where his grandfather had reigned, and he had him executed. He had him killed. A lot of family murder in this Herod dynasty, in this Herod family. It's quite spectacular. It's quite incredible, some of the things that these people did. He went on to rule over the territory from 37 A.D., to 44 AD. Despite being raised and educated in Rome, Agrippa I was always on shaky ground with the Romans. Uh, history says that he went a little hog wild and crazy with the old master card when he was back in Rome. Racked up a whole bunch of debt, lots of debt, indebted himself. I don't know if he built houses for himself, I don't know what he did, but he racked up a lot of debt while he was uh, living back in his home territory of, of Rome. And he actually fled to Palestine to get away from his creditors who wanted payment. He also had a smart mouth on him. He made some unsavory comments about the emperor Tiberius, who promptly imprisoned him. After being released... Following Tiberius' death, he was made ruler over northern Palestine. Isn't that funny? The guy that jacks the government and does all the damage and, and, and harms the people and rips off people ends up becoming the leader later on. Doesn't that sound like American politics? Boy, we sure are following the, the Roman tradition, aren't we? You could be a, back in the old days, there's no way you could be a criminal. If they found out anything about you, they aired it out and you got annihilated. Today, boy, that just doesn't matter. Anything goes. We're so much like them. So after being released, he went on to become the ruler of northern Palestine. And later on, he actually assumed the entire um, area as his grandfather had done. Judea and Samaria were added to his kingdom and he became as powerful as his grandfather, Herod the Great. Once those other territories were added to his kingdom, man, he had unlimited wealth and unlimited power. Very powerful king Agrippa was. And back in these days, this was the area where all of the power and wealth and money and organization and everything was happening in the world. I mean, this was really one of the most developed, especially with Rome, one of the most developed and advanced territories and areas. And so this was an epicenter kind of area to the whole world. Now, because of Agrippa's strained relationship with Rome, I don't know how he became an overseer because Rome appointed him. He still had a strained relationship with them. Therefore, because of this strained relationship, it was imperative that he maintain um, the loyalty of his Jewish subjects. Many of you know that um, Palestine was actually overseen and ruled by Rome. It had been conquered by Rome and it was overseen by Rome. And so Israel and the surrounding little cities and, and, and nations, if you will, or provinces were all under Roman control. And it was Grippa's responsibility to maintain his Jewish 
subjects, to, to keep the peace, if you will, to keep them in order. Rome understood and knew that they were a lot of what they would consider Jewish or religious fanatics there, and his duty was to keep those Jewish subjects in check, not let them get too crazy with their religion, and, and they would often fire up riots and things like that with the zealots. So Agrippa became a sort of Heine kisser. It's a nice way to put it. I think that's the church way to put it. On the street, I'd probably use a different term. But he became a Heine kisser. Mm -hmm. He did. He became a Heine kisser towards the Jewish leaders because he feared a bad report from them. He would actually do things and, and sort of pander to these religious leaders, which he actually despised, this religious community. He would pander to them out of fear that they could maybe send a report to Rome. They could get him in some sort of trouble. And so he was a hiney kisser towards them. He did things to accommodate them. He went out of his way to accommodate them. In fact, he'd do just about anything that was necessary to please the Jewish leaders so that his rule could continue unhindered. Agrippa was no friend to Jesus Christ. He was no friend to the apostles. He was no friend to the church. He was no friend of the gospel. He was a godless man who loved power, wealth, status, and control. He would literally stop at nothing to maintain his throne. He was even willing to draw up battle lines against God. This is the background of our text. That is the context of our text. So now you have these things in your mind. You understand a little bit of the history the area, the mentality, the ideology, the guy who's ruling, what he's done in the past, even to some of his own family, how he's an enemy of the gospel, how he'll do anything to maintain his throne. That is the background of our text. Without the context, it's hard to understand the depth and true meaning of the text. And that's why we give you these historical lessons. Now let's begin to study the text together with these things swirling around in our minds. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Acts 12, verse 1. We begin by reading about that time. Herod the king, Antipas, laid violent hands on some who belonged to who? To what? To the church. What church? Which church? The church of Jesus Christ. There was one church then. He laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now Luke wrote something we need to understand. He said about that time. What time is he referring to? He says and about that time. What time is he referring to? He is referring to that time that we see back at the end of Acts 11. It was during the time that what we studied last week, hour and a half, my bad, during the time that Barnabas and Saul were delivering food and supplies to the Christians in and around Jerusalem. That's what we studied last. This took place. He rose up and caused violence and harm against the church during the time that the church was actually planted and growing in those Gentile areas. Caesarea, Antioch. We studied that last week. This took place during the time that the great famine that Agabus prophesied about. There was a very great famine in the land. It was playing out right now in this particular area. That is when Agrippa laid violent hands on some church members or Christians. The church is growing. It's expanding into territories that no one, especially Jews, never considered up in these Gentile areas. And there's a great famine that's going on and supplies are bring, being brought down from uh, the northern area, the church up in Antioch, the Gentile church down south into Jerusalem to the Christians down there. That's when this happens. That's when this is playing out. 
That is when Agrippa declared war on God in the gospel. Now Luke goes on to give us an example of who he committed violence against. He gives us some specifics here. One great example. Verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with what? The sword. Agrippa located, Agrippa captured, and Agrippa killed James, who was the brother of John. James was John's older brother. James was one of the sons of Zebedee. James was one of the sons of thunder. We read the Gospels. We see these things. James was what? An apostle. He was a first-hand witness to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He was there. He traveled with Jesus. He healed people with Jesus. He fed people with Jesus. He slept under the stars next to Jesus. They roasted weenies together or lamb kebabs, whatever it was. Spent a lot of time together. He was there. And James, this apostle, this person that we're reading about, was the first apostle to be martyred, to be killed on behalf of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the Christian faith. How did Agrippa put James to death? It says by the sword. Being killed by the sword didn't mean being beheaded or any of those things. It meant being run through. We, watch, we love to watch these pirate movies and you see these pirates getting run through. He was run through. James was basically stabbed through the heart which caused him to what? To bleed to death. When I read that the other day, it just had a heavy heart. Just to know by looking at the Gospels and what kind of person James was, one who loved Jesus and others and was killed because he loved others and Jesus. Killed because he was a man of the truth. That truth that sets people free. What motivated Agrippa to commit this horrendous act of murder? Look at verse 3. And when he saw... <laughs> and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. What drove Agrippa to fight against God? What drove Agrippa to lay violent hands on Christians to kill an apostle? The answer is self-preservation. That is the underlining cause. That is the underlining motive behind why he did what he did. Agrippa was motivated by a desire to preserve his throne by pandering to his subjects, the Jews. Jews here is a reference to the Jewish religious leaders or the Sanhedrin, that body of Pharisees and Sadducees, religious leaders who governed the religious affairs of Israel. He was motivated by a desire to preserve himself, his lifestyle, his throne, his rule, his power, his wealth, all that he had. He was motivated and that is what led to him led him to do what he did, to pander to the Jews who really held his power in their hands. And so he did something to gain their favor. He was a hiney kisser. He was. Now, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here, but I believe that self-preservation is the cause for all warring against God and others. People will do anything and everything to preserve and protect their lifestyles, sinful lifestyles. Anything to protect their power, anything to protect their possessions, anything 
to protect their control, to protect their rights, their influence, their superiority, their dominance, whatever it is. It's human nature to do so. Fallen human nature, that is. Self-preservation delivers more people to hell than anything else. The broad road that leads to destruction mentioned in the scriptures is the broad road of self-preservation. People want what they want and they will do whatever they can, whatever they desire to preserve what they have or what they do. You think about men like Stalin and Mao Zedong and Hitler and Pol Pot and every other brutal dictator that has come and gone. Why did they war against God and humanity? Self-preservation. They did what they did to preserve their ideologies, their philosophies, their lifestyles, their influence, their power. They did what they did to expand their self-interests, forcing those interests upon others through brutality, violence, and fear. The broad road that leads to destruction is chalk full of self-preserving fools. I was one. Any mention of submission to the lordship of another, save for instance to Jesus Christ, rubs them the wrong way in every conceivable way. They will not listen to that kind of talk. They will not relent. They are self-made and absolutely determined to preserve their status, whatever it is, at any cost. That is the heart and attitude of every lost sinner. Not just the big time dictators, and not just the kings, and, and not just the Agrippas, but every sinner feels this way, and believes this way, and thinks this way. Every person apart from Jesus Christ. It's all about self-preservation, always, 24 hours a day. You're hearing from a man who was all about that for the majority, two-thirds of my life. It was all about Phil. Don't come at me with that garbage about submission or that's weakness to me. This is about me. This is about my happiness. This is about my domain. This is about my territory, my control. I am the master of my own life and destiny. Don't tell me that it comes from an outside or that I'm lost in that. I was ruled most of my life by a desire to preserve what I wanted, what I believed, even my own sinful lifestyle and practices and fornication and drunkenness and drug abuse and all of the things that made me that I was about. Self-preservation. Now why were these acts of violence and murder against the church pleasing to the Jews? <laughs> these are religious types. Aren't they supposed to be opposed to violence and these things? Not all religious types are. We know that even today. Even the Christians played that game during the Crusades. Shame on us. Let me give you some reasons why these acts of violence that Agrippa committed against the church were so pleasing to the Jews. Number one, they were pleasing because they provided the Jews, these religious types, with a sense of security. These Jews, these religious folks, they viewed Jesus and the church as a threat to not only to the religion, but to the nation of Israel. Why? Because they believed that Jesus, their own Messiah, was a false teacher who came to lead the people away from God. Every Jewish convert to Christianity was viewed as a person who had become led away into idolatry. Just as the Jews had been led away in the centuries past to Baal and all the other false gods, Jesus to them was no different than Baal. He was a false god to the Jews. In centuries past, God had 
judged Israel for her idolatries, smashed Israel, punished Israel, disciplined Israel, dispossessed them, moved them out of the land. And the Jews believe that if they did not bring the church and the gospel to an end, God would judge and punish the nation for her idolatry just as he had done in the past. Eliminating the church and the gospel was like an insurance policy against the wrath and judgment of God. Get rid of the church and the gospel and God will preserve us. He will bless us. He will get rid of the Romans and, and remove all of our hindrances and thorns and issues and struggle and strife. If the church and the gospel continued to expand, they believed, these religious Jews, they believed that God would destroy their land and displace them. So what? Attacking the church, committing acts of violence against the Christian church gave them a sense of security. Look, we're, we're taking care of the problem. That is our greatest threat, this Christian church. Oh my gosh, it's, it's spreading to the Gentile area now? We must destroy it. If we do not, we are finished. When in reality, it was in the reverse. So it was very pleasing to them to harm Christians. They rejoiced at the death of Stephen. Remember how he was thrown, rocks were thrown at him until he stopped breathing. He was killed, he was martyred, he was murdered, and they loved it. They rejoiced at that violence. They, they loved the persecution that, that Saul brought against the church. In fact, they charged him to do it. They sent him to Damascus to smash the church there. A great threat to their sense of security, hurting Christians and killing them. Oh, that makes us feel good. We know God's on our side if that happens. Number two, they were pleasing because they catered to the Jews' desire for retribution and payback. The Jews hated Jesus, hated the apostles, hated the gospel. Any act of violence against them resulted in a sense of retribution, like, man, we're getting our payback against that faction. We're getting our payback against them. They're the ones that are destroying our nation and ruining the Jewish faith. It gave them a sense of retribution. It catered to their flesh. They themselves wanted to commit these acts. And now you've got Agrippa doing it, and boy, did it really fuel their flesh. I think we often downplay just how offensive the gospel can be to those who are perishing. The Jews of Jesus' day despised the teachings of Jesus, the apostles, and the church. They despised the gospel. They literally hated them with every cell. They hated them with a fervent hatred, even a bloodthirsty hatred. Why? Because the gospel is an offense to those that are perishing, those who are perishing. Why is the gospel offensive to those who are perishing? It is offensive because it challenges us to consider who we really are. It is offensive because it boldly declares that we are sinners under the wrath of God. The gospel even calls our good deeds, the things that we do, filthy rags. The gospel declares that our only hope for eternal life or for a truly and for a truly abundant life in this life the only way to have that is through Jesus Christ well guess what ain't nobody got time for that right ain't nobody want to hear that who wants to hear that don't all paths lead to heaven don't my own good deeds cause me to go to heaven and God outweighs the bad? Nobody wants to hear that. That goes against our very fallen nature. Our cells want to erupt. He's lying when you hear that gospel. We got this down. Ain't nobody got time for this gospel. We're good. The gospel is actually a powerful, the most powerful wrecking ball 
against human ideology, against American ideology. We believe we are good. We believe we are righteous. We believe we are deserving. We believe we are worthy to receive God's best. Why? Because we were born in America. We believe we deserve more than we already have. We believe we deserve health and happiness. We be, totally believe we deserve respect and honor. But the gospel says something different, doesn't it? It shouts from the rooftops, things aren't as they seem. You have been lied to. You have been deceived. You are not good and you deserve none of those things. Because why? You have rebelled against God. Your religion isn't helping you. And so on and so forth. The gospel is a wrecking ball against our ideology, our thinking, our philosophy, our beliefs. And then it warns us that unless we repent, turn from that way of thinking, that self-reliance, false religion, whatever it is, unless we turn from those things, the things that we find our security in, our hope, our identity, whatever it is, it says unless we turn from that way of thinking, unless we believe in Jesus, we will pay for our rebellion for eternity. We will pay for our sins. That is an offensive message. It was to the Jews. And Agrippa's barbaric acts played right into their desire for retribution and payback. We are the most religious people on the face of the earth. Do not ever tell us that we are bound for hell as lost sinners. Kill the Christians do what you must to stop them. That is the attitude. Now Agrippa may have been on the broad road, but he was also wise in his flesh. He knew these things, and that is why he did what he could here. That's why he did what he did, just to play right into the Jews' fears. Killing the apostle, James actually turned out to be so advantageous for Agrippa that he set his sights even higher. Wow, look at the popularity and accolades and support and favor killing that apostle got me. So he set his sights even higher, it says in the text. He went after the head apostle, second in command to Jesus, first in command on the earth then. Who? Peter. Why stop at James? I wonder what Peter will buy me. Surely taking down Peter would catapult him to the highest levels of favor and popularity. Taking down Peter would not only preserve his throne, it would memorialize him. Agrippa would be hailed as the hero of the Jews, the preserver of their nation. What an opportunity he had here. What an opportunity he had. Notice the timing by which Agrippa concocted and hatched his devilish plan. Look at the second half of verse 3. It says this took place, this happened during the days of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread were the seven days that followed the killing and eating of the Passover lamb. According to Exodus 12, 15, Jews were not allowed to store or eat leaven for seven days after the Passover, Exodus 12, 15. During this time, this is the seven days that follows the Passover festival and feast. During this particular time, of year, this is the biggest feast and festival of the year. During this particular time, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of worshipers and Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem, where this is playing out. Pious Jews, Hellenists, and God fearers came from all over the world to worship God at the temple in the holy city during this time. Agrippa. 
he were to strike a deadly blow against the church during this particular time, he could gain worldwide favor and influence amongst the Jews. All he had to do was strike hard and fast while they were all gathered in his city. This was Agrippa's shining moment to display his talents on Star Search for some of you old folks, American Idol for some of you middle folks, and on The Voice for you newbies. This was it. This was his moment to display his talents. He knew this. So what did he do during the seven days of unleavened bread where all these people are gathered there? Look at verses 4 and 5a. And I am acting this thing out this morning. I have no idea why with all this. It's weird, isn't it? I don't normally do that. Let's start going into some Shakespeare pretty quick here. I don't, hopefully not. Um, I like Shakespeare, especially when Robin does it. I don't know where you're at, Robin, but pretty cool. Look at verses 4 and 5a. And when he had seized him, that's Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And then it says, so Peter was kept in prison. Agrippa seized the head of the apostles, Peter, and put him in prison. Agrippa then assigned Four squads of soldiers to guard him. He didn't put four soldiers on Peter's detail. He put four squads of soldiers on his detail. Each squad had four soldiers in it. The four squads of four were probably put on a four to six hour rotation. Each squad watched Peter for four to six hours, and then the next squad would come in and take over. That way Peter could be watched 24 hours a day. In many cases, a guard was literally chained directly to the prisoner. Paul had to deal with that. We'll read later in Acts. Bottom line, Agrippa did all that he could to make sure his prisoner was well guarded. He didn't want to lose this opportunity. Taking Peter out at the right time, like I said, would catapult him to the highest levels of fame and support. He did not want to lose Peter. Now, if you look back in Acts 5, 19 to 21, you don't have to turn there, but we read that at one point and studied it. We actually learned that Peter escaped from prison. <laughs> Agrippa was aware of this, that Peter was released in the middle of the night, went back to preaching in Solomon's portico. And he said, man, put, put 16 dudes on that guy. Chain somebody to him. He ain't going nowhere. Watch him. Keep him. I am not losing this golden opportunity to exalt myself, to do a little hiney kissing and get myself my throne and memorial and all that stuff. Boy, he was determined. He's not going to escape this time. I'll guarantee it. We'll put all kinds of guards on him. We'll have him at the gates and around him and chain to him. Boy, he did just about everything he could to keep him locked away. He was so well aware Peter's escape that he took no chances. He was not going to lose this opportunity. Now, the end of verse 4 shows us that Agrippa's intent was to bring Peter out before the people, before all of Jews and the people that were gathered there for the festival, to bring them out right after the Passover celebration ended. Agrippa was wise enough not to add or subtract anything to or from the festival. To do so could either pay higher dividends for him or bring disaster. I mean, trying to bring this guy out and do all this business with, you know, having a trial or whatever it is that he was aiming to do could cause a distraction from the Jews who were there to worship. And so he thought to himself, I probably should wait for better timing to do this. I don't know if I want to, you know, come in and, and potentially frustrate this moment of worship. It could backfire for crying out loud. They could get really ticked at me if I do this because not everyone there was opposed to the church. There were Christians in this community, too. And so he was wise in that he thought through how to do this, and he knew that a distraction would not benefit him. So he chose to wait until the festival was over, but he had to time things just right. 
He knew that the worshipers who had traveled, the pilgrims who had come from all over, he knew that they would start to leave right after the days of unleavened bread. So he planned to bring Peter out right when it ended, like the hour after it ended. I mean, he had to time this thing just right. I don't want anyone to leave, but I don't want to do it in the middle of the thing. And so he waits, man, bam, right when it ends. His plan is to bring Peter out. He's a clever guy. Those who plot against the Lord tend to be clever for a season. Are they more clever than a God who knows all things? <laughs> oh, I know something you don't know. Yeah. I knew that you were going to think that in eternity past. Boom. He chose to wait till the festival was over. He had to time things just right during the hour after it ended. Now, what was Agrippa's plan once he had Peter before all the people? He was going to bring him out, probably in, in that colonnade area in the temple grounds where there would be just thousands and thousands of people, or maybe even at the governor's palace where Pilate brought out Jesus. What was he going to do once he brought him out? The text doesn't say, but I suspect that he was planning to do a Pontius Pilate-like thing. He was going to put... Peter before the people. He was going to let them cry out for blood and death. That's what happened with Jesus. He was going to force the Romans to take action. It was unlawful for a Jew to put anyone to death. But this guy, Agrippa, really wasn't a Jew. He was a king, so he probably had some additional power in comparison to the religious leaders. But he may have been planning to bring, them, bring him out and have all the people turn against Peter as they did Jesus and, and force the Romans to do something about it. We don't see him getting Roman support to kill James. He just did it. So maybe he had the power to do that himself. And then after the people said, hey, you know, give us Barabbas with Jesus, they'd probably say, hey, kill Peter, crucify him, behead him, run him through with a sword. Before doing that, though, they'd have Peter flogged, no doubt, whipped within an inch of his life. And then they would probably, he would probably have him killed and Maybe by crucifixion. That's the only way to kill a prominent leader in the Christian faith, right? You put him on a cross and let him suffer that way. And then what? Problem solved. Hero of the Jews. Most popular man in the world. Write him down in the annals of history. That was his intent. That was his strategy. That was his plan. some closing thoughts for us. Obviously, we'll continue in the narrative next week. We're not done with this text yet. We're close. I want to spin a scenario or two before you and have you ponder these things. I'd like to put before you a few thoughts. Favorite part for me. What would you do if our government decided to arrest Christian leaders, put them in prisons, and even put some of them to death. Imagine with me that, that Aaron, or Colby, Bruce, imagine with me that, that they have been taken off to prison. Imagine that Government officials have come into this building and seized them and taken them off and put them in jail. And then imagine with me two days later that they are killed with the sword. And then imagine two days after that they come to RHC and they arrest me. They put me in prison. And you learn through the little murmurings that always get out, and the words that get out and slide around through people, and the rumors and the, and the gossip. You, you learn that the government plans to bring me before a multitude of people that essentially hate Jesus and the church during Christmas break. Think about it. Come right in weapons, riot gear, they snatch up some of our leaders, take them, put them in prison, 
slay them with the sword. Then they come back on maybe the following Sunday, and they take me right in the middle of this. So they come down from there right now. They take me. And then you hear that they're planning to bring me down in front of the Gallo Center, in front of all these people that are antagonistic and hateful towards Jesus and Christians. Do you see it in your mind's eye? It's hard for me to imagine, but I suspect someday it will happen. Maybe sooner than later. Imagine that. How should you respond? What should you do? Should you exercise your Second Amendment rights against a tyrannical government? Take up arms? Load your daddy's shotgun? Should you take up the sword? Should you fight fire with fire? Meet force with force. Should you utilize your MMA skills on all government officials? Little arm bar, little rear naked choke. Whenever you get the chance. Should you gather the church and march down to the county jail and bust me out? Somehow you find dynamite and blow a hole in the wall. What should you do? That's the million dollar question and the answer is found in 5b. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's what you do. The church prayed. In fact, the church prayed like it never had before. Earnest means to pray with intense fervency. There is another example of this intense, fervent prayer in the scriptures, and it's going to blow your mind where we see it. It is found in the Gospels where Jesus prayed to the Father while in Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. What did he pray? Oh, Father, please remove this chalice. Please rescue me from the cup of my despair. No one in the history of the world has ever prayed like he did that night. And in the text, we see the church praying with that fervency. Jesus was so emotionally distraught during his bitter prayer that he suffered one of the rarest disorders on earth, hematidrosis. He sweated drops of blood in bitter anguish of the soul with a shattered heart. He pleaded with the Father for deliverance. And that is how the church prayed for Peter. In bitter anguish of the soul with shattered hearts they prayed, Oh, Father, please deliver our beloved brother from the hands of Agrippa and the Jews. Please rescue our beloved apostle and teacher. Please don't let them harm him. Please don't let them harm him. Please don't let them harm him. And they did this over and over. There is a repetition in the text. They didn't pray this once. They came together and continued to pray over and over and over. This is the right response to that kind of scenario, my beloved. We pray like we've never prayed. We don't take up arms. There is so much energy being poured into gun things, and we've got to preserve our guns, and we've got to do this. And, oh, so much energy poured into these things, and no prayer. Do you want to see Pastor Saeed freed? Petitions are going to do nothing. Prayer is what will get him freed. You know who he is, don't you? In a prison in Iran. Maybe 
should do as the early church did, devote ourselves to continuous, earnest prayer. Oh, this scenario is not playing out in this church right now. What scenario is playing out in your life? Do you pray like these people prayed over your family, over the lost, over your own life, over your health? What kind of prayers do we offer up? Oh, Lord, help me. See you later. Got to go to a movie. When's the last time we were shattered, crying out desperately? Friends, I must remind us all that the prayer of a righteous person is not powerful and effective. Let's not neglect one of our most powerful weapons against the adversaries of God. Prayer. Don't forget that we are also soldiers of Christ. 2 Tim 2 3. We are to fight, but not with the weapons of this world. We use the weapons of God's kingdom, the very word of God, and prayer. they ever come take our leaders away pray pray that they don't pray 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 today they don't pray that our government has a, a change of heart and it repents but if it does if it, that day comes and that day has come in countless other nations other third world countries. You know how many people, how many leaders have been killed and slayed who love Christ? The blood of the martyrs is the very seed for evangelism. Thousands, hundreds of thousands have been slayed. Let's pray. Next week we will be given an even broader glimpse of how... <laughs> Futile it is to fight against God and just how powerful prayer can be. Make every effort to be here. Mark your calendar. Plan on it. And commit yourself this week to pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Pray for your family. Pray for your children. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for our community. Are you watching what's playing out in our community? You see what's going on? We're going to be given such an example of how powerful prayer is. Let's commit ourselves to praying. And we need to lead by example as elders. We're going to have a time of communion now where we can celebrate the Lord's goodness. Communion is for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you are not in Christ, I pray that you would be. pray that Christ would become the apple of your eye. That you would Love him and know that he's with you and that he's the redeemer and all that he is. He's so wonderful and spectacular. Change your life. <laughs> he turns you around and you become a very threat against the things that you loved before. It's a paradox. It's amazing. That is who he is. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. And his love is so amazing that you're enthralled with it, even willing to lay out your neck on the chopping block for him. There's nothing like it. You would die for Christ because he died for you. So this time is for the saints to celebrate the, the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It covers our sin. Every sin, not some of them. Every sin, no matter how bad, no matter how provocative, no matter how dirty you feel, no matter what you've done, his blood removes them all, washes you white as snow. We're going to celebrate the blood that he spilled and the fact that his work is finished, that we don't have to walk out of here trying to earn our way. Christianity is the antithesis to all other religions. There's nothing to earn. 
Christ earned it. We just enjoy it. Savor his grace. Savor his love. Savor his mercies. They're new every day. We don't have to earn anything with him. We get to be God the Father's children through Jesus Christ. And what a blessing that is. Especially when you're a guy like me who came from a broken home and had no concept of what a real dad's like. How wonderful he is. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that in this very moment, we would become some praying fools. <laughs> and maybe, may prayer be the first thing that we go to every day, not just in trouble or when we're in want. We just become praying fools, praying all the time, praying continually as the Apostle Paul said. And that there would be times where we pray in ways that are deeper and, and harder. That we would boldly come before your throne. Crying out to you for help. Crying out to you for our community. Crying out to you for those who are shackled to sin and death. Despair, hopelessness. Oh, may they come. To know you, Jesus, and have your hope. We're going to celebrate this moment of communion, Lord. And what communion ultimately represents is our freedom. Freedom in you. Jesus, you are our dear Lord. Apply these truths to our hearts, Lord. May we ponder them, consider them, contemplate during this time as we spend time with you. May we remember what the blood represents, your spilt the juice represents your spilled blood, the bread, your broken body for us. They represent together the great covenant of love and grace that you've brought every Christian into, a new way of life. We are new creatures in you, living under your rule and reign, which is far better than living under my own rule and reign. How pointless it is to fight against you, God. You always win. May we celebrate the victory that you have won in our lives over sin and death. I pray that these beloved people would enjoy this time with you, Jesus. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Help yourselves. The elements are on the sides.